Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I've still, to this day, never met anybody that could finish my sentences. He just was really intuitive like that. He wanted to be married and have kids so, so badly. And at that point, I'm 21, and I just felt too young. And so I literally remember him just disappearing, like ghosting. And I just, one day, I just didn't hear from him. Then it turned into a week, and then two weeks, and... I just never heard from him again. So I turn on the 12 o'clock news and they brought it up. They said, there's, you know, here's the picture. It was insane. I, I was hysterical. I remember being hysterical. And I called my best friend and just hysterics. Like, oh my gosh, it just snowballed from there. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. And before we start our episode today, I mean, I feel like I've gotten really good at reminding everybody to uh, join us over on Patreon. But we've been covering some really crazy stories over there. And if you're running out of content, especially first degree content, that is the place to be. Yeah. And as a reminder, we're putting out scripted, well-researched, true crime episodes every week. And these submissions are coming in through our listeners. So if there's a case you want to hear, that's the place to request it. And we'll probably do it. We will do it. I think we're we're getting through them. Also, if uh, we're always obviously looking for first degree cases. So if you've been listening and you're connected to something that you want to tell us about, you can email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. And like I said, a couple weeks ago, we are also wanting to get into the uh, true con of it all. So Mm -hmm. if you have any twisted turny kind of a story involving a scam of sorts, let us know. Definitely. All right. Well, I think that that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. So no one likes to admit that they have an ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend that they still think about. You know, the one that got away. It can be painful. 
and a broken heart that you can never, ever fully mend. I mean, no one has fun with that. And you can't really confide in anyone about missing your ex. Certainly not your current partner, who definitely doesn't want to hear about how you're still navigating feelings for another person. And maybe not even your friends. You don't want them to think that you're a bad person thinking about somebody who's not your partner. And we all know that an ex usually is a mistake best left alone. But sometimes it's hard to not scratch that itch, especially when all you want to do is scroll through their Instagram or Facebook feeds, you know, stalk their Snapchat stories, whatever it is you're doing, lurking their TikToks. You might even convince yourself that you should send them just one innocent text just to see how they're doing or maybe wish them a happy birthday. And then when alcohol enters the mix, when you're drunk and battling these what harm could it do notions about your ex, well, that one text can turn into many, maybe even a phone call or two or three. But in most cases, reaching out to your ex leads to nothing, nothing dangerous anyway. Embarrassment, humiliation, anxiety, maybe a regrettable one night stand. But in today's case, these drunk texts and phone calls from an ex don't lead to anything as harmless as that. Instead, they're the precursor to something far, far worse. So today's case begins on July 13th of 2008. Teenagers everywhere, including myself, are carefully curating their MySpace top eight friends list. I mean, this was my glory days. Oh, yes. Ugh, I miss it. In world news, Beijing is preparing to host the 2008 Summer Olympics. And in music, Katy Perry's song, I Kissed a Girl, is hotter than ever. On July 13th, it's number one in the nation, and it'll stay there for six more weeks. And this is also a really big summer for superhero movies. In July, Will Smith's Hancock and Christian Bale's The Dark Knight both premiere and are huge box office successes. And these two successful movies, combined with 2008's hugely popular Iron Man, paved the way for the enormous superhero movie franchises that we see today. Right. And the setting for today's case is Ogden, Utah. Ogden is located 40 miles north of Salt Lake City in Weber County, and it's a medium-sized city of about 87,000 people. Back in the 1800s, Ogden made its name as an important railroad town. In fact, any person traveling to or from the West Coast by train was almost certainly going to have to pass through Ogden. And their local Chamber of Commerce motto was, literally, you can't get anywhere without coming to Ogden. Today, thanks to Ogden's beautiful mountains, ski resorts, and live music events, it's a popular travel destination. And now, instead of train transportation, Ogden is known for producing some of the world's most cutting-edge outdoor sports gear, software, and biopharmaceuticals. So our first degree for today's case is named Sherelle. And around the year 2000, she was 18 years old and enrolled at Weber State University, which is in, I'm sure you've guessed it, Ogden. And at this point, Sherelle had graduated from both high school and beauty school. And that's a big accomplishment when you're only 18 years old. That's crazy. And she wasn't done yet. Now she's earning her bachelor's degree in criminal justice. A true queen. And this is how Sherelle met a classmate of hers. His name was Jacob Daniel Etheridge, and he was about 23 years old. Like Sherelle, Jacob was also getting his criminal justice degree from Weber State University. So naturally, Sherelle and Jacob had a few classes together. It was probably my second year in college. And the first time I had any like connection to him was in one of my classes. You know, he would always sit in the back. He's huge. He's like 6'4". And I think he was like 260, but he was loud, but he was so smart. I mean, he knew every question that all the professors would ask. So that was my first, you know, knowing who he was. 
So Jacob was known in the class as being the guy with a huge personality. And Sherelle was known as the girl who always had candy. I mean, I would like to be known for that. That's a fun thing to be known by. It's cool if you're a girl in class. It's bad if you're a stranger in a van. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, I guess context matters. So Sherelle, being the really nice person that she was, always gave candy to people who sat next to her in class. And Jacob started sitting next to her more often. So at first, Jacob was after Sherelle's candy, but soon it was clear that Jacob was sitting next to Sherelle for another reason. He had a crush on her, and he wasn't shy about it. And eventually, he made a point to talk to Sherelle after class. Even when Jacob dropped a class that he and Sherelle would have had together, he still stopped by the other classes to talk to Sherelle as she was leaving them. So he was making it a point and going out of his way to get some FaceTime with Sherelle. I remember the second semester we had a class and he sat right next to my friend and I. And we were both like, oh my gosh, that's Jake. And he introduced himself and we were like, oh, he's kind of nice. But then when he dropped the class, he would wait outside of the classroom every time we had class. And that's how we started to kind of get to know each other. We probably talked a good half hour after every single class. It didn't take long for Jacob to ask Sherelle out, but she wasn't really sure if Jacob was really her type. And as Sherelle said, Jacob was a large opinionated dude, and we're talking over six feet tall, and Sherelle was only 5'2". And maybe that doesn't matter to some people, but Sherelle just wasn't really feeling it at first. It was just probably a couple weeks later where he was asking to go out. And I mean... For a long time, I was like, nah, I was making up excuses. I have to go to work, because he was kind of intimidating, because he was so big. I was attracted to him. He looks a lot like Toby Keith. His hair was curly on the top, and it was bleached at that time. So he reminded us all of Toby Keith. So Toby Keith, lookalike or not, Jacob's brand of flirting towards Sherelle was odd. For example, Jacob would frequently tell Sherelle that he could see her panty line through her clothes. He was just so imposing, and he was really forward. This was back in the day. I mean, this was probably 2001, where we were wearing a lot of khakis. And he would always say to me, I can see your panty line. (laughs) And I was like, excuse me? And he's like, you should wear a thong, so then people can't see your panty line. It is an odd comment to make sure I'll feel a little self-conscious about a problem that isn't really a problem at all. And then to offer a semi-sexual solution. But in Sherelle's defense, she took it like a champ. She laughed the whole thing off and assumed that Jacob had the best of intentions. And maybe he did. But still, let's all promise to flirt a little better, please. Yeah. 2023, we're not using the uh, I can see your panty line as a pickup line. It's also a neg. You know? I also don't like when men say panties. No, panty is a word that we need to retire just disgusting in general. So every all everything about this is not okay. It's funny though. I was watching a TV show the other day. I think it was Fargo. And they call a man in his underwear. They refer it to a man wearing panties. And I think it's the funniest thing. That is ever. Yes. And I'm like, yes, start using it for men. And then men will stop using it. Yeah. Only men. I love yes. that. I'm going to start Me using too. it. Okay. Same. So <laughs> regardless of what Jacob was doing and how he was trying to flirt, he was really persistent. And eventually he wore Sherelle down. She agreed to go on that first date with Jacob and she had a really, really good time. So of course, Sherelle agreed to go on a second date and then a third. And before long, she was smitten. He was just fun. I remember going to the movies one time and 
we were sitting by this group of older ladies and he made up this huge elaborate story how we were we were newlyweds we'd been married two weeks and this whole thing and it was just silly and cute and one time he picked me up the salon and when he dropped me off that night we like danced in the parking lot he turned on the music in his car and we just danced it was really fun then we started hanging out with his brother and then a bunch of my girlfriends so we did tons of stuff together turns out jacob was a bit of a charmer And he had some other impressive qualities, too, like he served in the Marine Corps for a while before he was discharged for a back injury. And he liked to volunteer for things like the 2002 Olympics, which were held in Utah. And Sherelle was, of course, a catch. So it only made sense that Sherelle and Jacob did, in fact, fall deeply in love. And they were boyfriend and girlfriend for several years. When Sherelle talked about her and Jacob's relationship, it sounded pretty beautiful. I've still, to this day, never met anybody that he could finish my sentences He knew exactly, like, what I was thinking. Like, if I would pause to think about something, he would finish it and say, I know this is what you're thinking. And he just was really intuitive like that. But as Sherelle and Jacob's relationship progressed, they realized that they had very differing views on very important topics, namely marriage and kids and the timeline for everything regarding that. 26-year-old Jacob was ready to get married, like, yesterday. But 21-year-old Sherelle wasn't ready for that at all. He wanted to be married and have kids so, so badly. And at that point, I'm 21, and I was like, Jake. And he'd already been married and divorced at that point. He wasn't done with school. I wasn't done with school. And I just felt too young. So Sherelle felt like she was too young for marriage, and that's reasonable. But for whatever reason, Jacob could not handle that. So Jacob left. He vanished. Poof gone. I literally remember him just disappearing, like ghosting. And I just one day, I just didn't hear from him. Then it turned into a week and then two weeks and I just never heard from him again. Sherelle was understandably heartbroken. I mean, to have your boyfriend of several years just ghost you is so horrible, so rude, so disrespectful and like honestly really unbelievable traumatizing it's just like how could you how yeah. could you to somebody that you're supposedly in love with but when Cheryl found out that Jacob had gotten engaged to another woman only six months later I mean I can't even imagine how upset she actually was I was really upset I mean the grapevine in college we all have the same degree that he was engaged that's where I was really upset because I thought what the heck he moved on really fast And I felt like he just got what he wanted. He just wanted to be married and have kids. So that's obviously so frustrating, especially when Jacob didn't have the decency to actually break things off with Sherelle. But Sherelle is and was a badass. So she moved on just fine. Or she was trying to at least. Until one day, Jacob called Sherelle out of the blue. He was drunk. And he just left his own bachelor party for his own upcoming wedding. I was going on a trip with my girlfriend, and he randomly called me. It was probably 11 o'clock at night, and he was so drunk. He had just left his bachelor party, and I think he was getting married within the next week. And just went off on me, like, I love you so much. I've never loved anyone like you. I, I can't stop thinking about you. Sherelle and Jacob spoke for about two hours. And finally, Jacob asked Sherelle the question that had been plaguing him for a long time. Did she still love him? 
the last thing I remember him saying was, will you just tell me if you love me or not? I was afraid that if I said, yes, I still love you, that he would like break off his marriage and that's not what I wanted. I just paused and I said, I, I don't know what to say because if I lie to you, you're going to know. I said, you're going to know either way. And he just said, I already know. I think he like passed out because the phone went, I mean, he just went silent. Look, we've all had messy relationships before, so we're not here to judge. Sometimes it can be really, really hard to let the one that got away actually go. And it seems like this was the case for Jacob. And so life went on. Jacob married his second wife and began a family, and Sherelle continued onward, happily single and enjoying her life. But it seems like Jacob truly never let go of Sherelle. And there are reasons why we believe that. Like when Jacob randomly stopped by Sherelle's salon. He got married. I moved to salon, actually bought a salon. And I was still in school. He graduated before me. And I got back to my salon after school. And my girls were like, some guy stopped into the salon today asking for you. So I'm like asking them, what did he look like? Da-da-da. And it was him. But he didn't say he didn't leave his number. He didn't say, I'll be back. Nothing. And he never came back. He never came back. I was kind of excited. Not going to lie. I was kind of excited. I was like, oh. I was intrigued. But I didn't call him. And he never called me. Around 2005, Sherelle was preparing to graduate from Weber State University with her criminal justice degree. And one of her last courses she had to take was a night class. And that night class just so happened to be where Jacob was also taking a night class. You see, he'd recently enrolled in Weber's school for aspiring correctional officers, and he was taking the first course, which was about probation and parole. I had a night class in college, and we had a break, and it was a big building, and I walked around the corner, and he is walking towards me. That's the first time I'd seen him since he was married, and I mean, I remember we gave each other a huge hug, and you know, what's up with life. And that's when he had said, oh, you know, I'm happily married. We just had a little girl. Things are really good. What's up with you? After reconnecting this way, Jacob and Sherelle started talking again. And it wasn't romantic or anything. They just had a lot to hash out. So when Sherelle's night class would take a break, Sherelle would go and talk to Jacob. But over time, Sherelle realized that talking to Jacob hurt way more than it helped. We met up on our break every time. Until about two weeks in, I think it was both of us where we were like, this is probably not good. You're married. It's kind of drumming up feelings. And we both kind of agreed, you know, the way it was left off after, you know, he disappeared. He like apologized and he's like, I think this should be our closure. And it was so good seeing you. I think so highly of you. It was a little sad, but I felt really good about it because we really did have closure. You know, he kind of said... I know it probably I was meant to marry my wife, like, you know, because I have my daughter now and we're happy and and I'm just sorry how I left it with you that I didn't really talk to you anymore, but things are how they were supposed to be. So I felt fine. I felt fine. I never saw him so, again. Like, we never ran into each other in that same building again the whole semester. Okay, so you're probably thinking, well, that was the end of that, right? Wrong. Because about a year later, in 2006... Jacob called Sherelle again, this time on her work phone. And keep in mind, Sherelle hadn't given Jacob her number, work or otherwise. So he must have asked around or searched it in some other more inventive way. 
And you're going to have to decide if you think that that is sweet or if it's creepy. But being Sherelle, she's the nicest person alive. She answered Jacob's phone call. And when he continued calling her every day, she always picked up. And look, we totally get it. Sherelle used to really like and really love Jacob. And he was the one who messed everything up between the two of them, not her. So probably a year later, I had moved my salon to another city changed phone number and everything. And all of a sudden one day, my phone rings at work, I pick it up. Well, lo and behold, it's him. He had found me. (laughs) So again, we talk, he calls me almost daily at that point and we talk for half hour to an hour every time. And through these phone calls, Sherelle started to get the feeling that maybe Jacob wasn't doing so well. They do not have a good marriage at this point. Like he said, he was sleeping on the couch, but surprise, his wife was pregnant with their second, but their marriage was not good. I think his life was in shambles. Like his ex-wife had a child, his current wife had a little girl, and I don't know if that was part of his stress with dealing with that, a blended family. Again, it was about two, maybe plus weeks of talking and him just kind of opening up about about his life and that's when he had worked at a it was like a juvenile work center where they live there and I guess he'd had an affair with one of his co-workers and I guess he was going to get fired. And just like before Jacob used these phone calls to tell Sherelle how much he missed her how she was the one that got away. But it was clear to Sherelle that Jacob was an absolute mess at this time, and she just wasn't really interested in him anymore. He had said, I've been looking in the newspaper every single Sunday to see if your wedding announcement is in there. He said, I've looked for two years every Sunday, because that's when you used to put your wedding announcements in the local newspaper. And he said, I've talked to my dad about you. He said, because I just can't stop thinking about you. He said, I feel like you were the one that got away. Like you were my one true love. You know, my life is falling apart here. At this point, I'm thinking, whew, like it's kind of nice that I don't have to deal with him. But of course, I think I was flattered in an odd way that, oh gosh, he's really been thinking about me for years and years. And he's talked to his dad about me. Again, it kind of, organically dropped off as in he didn't call me again and I never called him back and just kind of left it at that. In January of 2008, Jacob reached out to Sherelle one final time, a Hail Mary, if you will. And Sherelle told Jacob what we all wish we could tell all of our exes, you need therapy. And to be fair, in Jacob's case, he probably did. I think part of him He was like waiting for his wife to have the baby and get a divorce and then wanted to get in touch with me. In January of 2008, I got a text message from a random number and it was him. You know, he's just like, hey, I'm just thinking about you. Just want to say hi and see how things are going. And that's when I had said, oh, I'm engaged. I'm getting married in June. And how are you? And that's when he had said, my life is not going well. He's like, I can't hold a job. I've just been a mess. He said, I feel like I'm going to do something not good. I'm going to do something drastic. I remember exactly saying to him, Jake, you need to get help. You need to 
get into therapy, you need to get on medication, you need something because you're not in a good place, you're going to hurt yourself. That was the last time I ever, ever talked to him. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. For seven months, our first degree Sherelle didn't hear a word from now 31-year-old Jacob Etheridge. And honestly, it was probably for the best. Clearly, he had some stuff that he needed to figure out in his life. And she continued to hear nothing. That was until the morning of Sunday, July 14th of 2008, when Sherelle saw Jacob again. But this time, Sherelle didn't see Jacob in person. Instead, his photo was on her local news station. 
I still remember it was a Sunday morning, and I always watched the news. I turned on the news, and they said that the body of a woman had been found, and somebody had turned themselves in. And so I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then probably about four or five hours later, at the 12 o'clock news, I turn on the TV again, and they brought it up. They said, there's, you know, here's the picture. And, and so he confessed to the one that, that the body was found, and then there was another one that he also confessed to. And that's when his face popped up. It was insane. I, I was hysterical. I remember being hysterical and I called my best friend and just hysterics like Jake just killed two women and oh my gosh it just it just snowballed from there it's crazy I didn't talk about it for years I didn't tell anybody it is crazy okay so for real what the hell was going on had Jacob really killed two women who were these women what had happened Was this some sort of mistake, a big misunderstanding? Sure, Jacob had seemed like he was having a hard time, but he definitely didn't seem like a murderer. To answer all these questions, you know the drill. We got to go back. Late at night on Saturday, July 12th of 2008, Jacob had done the unthinkable. He'd shot and killed two innocent women in cold blood. Afterward, Jacob went to his parents' house in Roy, Utah, which is a suburb of Ogden and where he was living at the time. When Jacob got to his parents' house, he woke up his dad, and he explained exactly what he'd done. Next, Jacob and his dad drove to the Ogden police station, and that's where Jacob confessed to everything, including that he'd stopped taking his six antidepressant and anti-anxiety medications about a month prior, and that he'd been thinking about killing someone for about a year. Apparently, Jacob was curious about what murdering somebody would feel like. During Jacob's confession, the questioning officer asked Jacob if killing someone was what he thought it would be. And Jacob replied, it wasn't what I expected. I didn't think I would feel remorse, and I do. Then why did he do it twice? If you did one and it wasn't what you expected, why would you do it again moments later? It's just baffling to me. Yeah. Jacob had murdered two women. 43-year-old Teresa Renee Tingey and 25-year-old Rosanna Marie Cruz. They were both daughters, mothers, sisters, and human beings, and they were also sex workers. And as you know from our previous episodes, we're very passionate about protecting sex workers from violent men like Jacob. It's literally why we did the whole Heavy Metal Project in tandem with our LISC series and donated the proceeds to the Sex Workers Outreach Project. But sadly, nobody can help Teresa and Rosanna. So let's take this moment to make sure that their memories stay alive. Teresa Renee Parks was born on June 30th of 1965 to her father, James Williams Jr., and her mother, Mary, in Los Angeles, California. Teresa was the only daughter out of four children, so I'm betting that her house was pretty crazy when growing up. One daughter and three sons seems like it would have been both fun and chaotic. Oh, yeah. Although much of Teresa's family was from California and she herself was even born in L.A., Teresa lived all over the United States. Yeah, so Teresa lived in California, Louisiana, Pennsylvania, Utah, and Wyoming. And she really ended up identifying with Wyoming, so much so that all of her friends called her Wyoming as a nickname. And it makes sense. A lot happened for Teresa in Wyoming. Right. Wyoming is where Teresa met a man who was three years older than her. His name was Mark, and he was from Rock Springs, Wyoming. And on May 30th of 1988, 23-year-old Teresa married 26-year-old Mark Tingey in Reno, Nevada. 
And we don't think Teresa ever lived in Nevada based on the research. So she and Mark probably made a quick trip to Reno for the sole purpose of getting hitched. And in the exact opposite of Teresa's own childhood experience, where she was the only girl with three brothers, Teresa and Mark had one son and three daughters. But unfortunately, Teresa and Mark's relationship didn't end up working out. And eventually, Teresa made her way to Utah. All of her life, Teresa worked primarily in the construction industry, but that wasn't her only interest. She also loved the outdoors. Teresa would hike, fish, hunt, and camp under the stars whenever she could. And in Teresa's obituary, she's remembered as a very spiritual person as well. And Teresa had a lot of friends, and all of them were incredibly saddened by her death. One of Teresa's friends said to the Desert News that Teresa was funny. She was a really generous person. If you needed money, she'd give you money to help. Teresa's friends also explained that Teresa struggled with a drug addiction. Right. And as a result, Teresa ended up in sex work in Ogden, Utah. Specifically, Teresa worked on Adams Avenue, near 26th and 24th Street. And this just so happened to be the same street where Rosanna Marie Cruz practiced sex work as well. Rosanna Marie Cruz was born around the year 1983 to her mother, Lily Mae Torres. Rosanna, who went by Rosie, and her five siblings grew up in LaBelle, Florida. And even though Rosie was the fourth of six kids, her mother always lovingly referred to her as my baby. Her mother, Lily, explained that Rosie loved laughing and she loved having fun, and she would literally never hurt a soul. Sometime in Rosie's early 20s, she met and married a man. And we don't know that man's name, but he pressured Rosie to move to Utah with him, and this would be leaving her entire family behind. Then, the same man, Rosie's husband, just disappeared with no warning. He and Rosie had had a fight, and he packed his stuff and just left her. And you're not even going to believe this because this is so messed up, but he also stole Rosie's identification information and probably ruined her credit and all of the stuff that comes along with that. And that made it impossible for Rosie to get a job. And that is how Rosie ended up in sex work, because at the end of the day, we all have bills to pay. And Rosie was having a difficult time paying hers, especially as she battled her own drug addiction. And she couldn't afford a cell phone, so she would call her mother whenever somebody would let her borrow theirs. And she would just say to her mom, you know, hey, I'm okay, I'm still here. Rosie's mom, Lily, explained to the Desert News, I had so many numbers on my phone that she had called from, and none of them were hers. About a week before Jacob killed Rosie, she had plans to get out of Utah and head back to Florida to be with her family. She wanted to be with her sisters, her brothers, and especially her mom. And according to Rosie's mom, Rosie had recently found out that Rosie herself had cancer, and she was scared. Rosie called her mom and said, Mommy, I'm going to come home. I'm going to get my ticket on July 17th, and I'm coming home. But Rosie never got her ticket on July 17th, because on July 13th, Jacob killed her. And this is what happened. According to the Standard Examiner, 31-year-old Jacob had had a fight with his girlfriend sometime on the night of Saturday, July 12th of 2008. Afterward, Jacob was pissed and, I guess, horny. He wanted to hire a sex worker, so he drove to an area where he knew where sex workers were readily available, Adams Avenue. And around this time, Adams Avenue was a hotbed for sex work, drug deals, and shady happenings. It looks like today it's been cleaned up a lot since back then, and they've created special safety task forces exclusively for this area. And several of the more broken down buildings have been removed. But back in 2008, Jacob knew exactly what side of town that he was on. So as Jacob started wandering around Adams Avenue, 25-year-old Rosie approached him. After some chit-chat, Jacob expressed an interest in hiring her for sex work. 
Then Rosie took him up to an abandoned apartment so they could be alone. Jacob requested that Rosie service him with oral sex, but Rosie couldn't. She had sores on her mouth, so that was off the table. And according to Jacob's own confession, he was, quote, repulsed by Rosie's, quote, nasty medical condition. And so Jacob pulled out his 40 caliber semi-automatic handgun and shot her in the neck. Then Jacob pocketed his shell casing and left. Following that, Jacob went north a little ways to a nearby bar. And about 30 minutes later, he started heading towards his car. And that's when Teresa approached and called out to Jacob, Mike, hey, Mike. And the two began talking. And this might have been a way that Teresa initiated conversation with potential clients, and Jacob was obviously interested. He was completely unfazed by the fact that he had just murdered a woman in cold blood. This is terrifying. So scary. And he was, like, probably acting normal. Yeah. Oh, my God. And just like with Rosie, Jacob hired Teresa for the purpose of oral sex, and Teresa took him behind an apartment building. It's unclear if Jacob made her perform oral sex or not, but by the end of it, Jacob had shot Teresa through the head. And also, just like with Rosie, Jacob picked up the shell casing and left. Or at least he tried to. The bullet had actually passed all the way through Teresa's head. So this time, Jacob grabbed the bullet, mistaking it for the shell casing, and then he left. And as you already know, Jacob confessed. So this remaining bullet casing wasn't key to the investigation, but just one more way for the police to tie Jacob to these horrific murders. And right before Teresa left with Jacob, Teresa's best friend, who was also a sex worker, was with her. And that friend told the Desert News that Teresa's last words were, stay here, I'll be back. But Teresa never came back. As Jacob left Adams Avenue after he murdered two women, he texted his girlfriend and his parents. It's not clear what he wrote in those text messages. Then Jacob went to his parents' house, changed out of his bloody clothes, and told his dad what happened. And Jacob's dad, thank God, immediately made Jacob redress in the same bloody clothes, and together they went to the Ogden police station. One of the first things that Jacob said to the officers was, I shot two girls. And from there, Jacob detailed exactly what happened and why it had happened. But in order for us to get into Jacob's motive, we need to know a little bit more about Jacob's background. Because even though he seemed really sweet and really caring to our first-degree Shirelle, his violent behavior wasn't out of the blue for Jacob. In fact, he'd been showing warning signs for a long time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Jacob Daniel Etheridge was born on January 3rd of 1977 
to his mother, Sharon, and his father, whose name we don't know, in Prince William, Virginia. Not much information is available about Jacob's younger years, but shortly after Jacob graduated from high school, he joined the Marine Corps. And on January 21st of 1998, 21-year-old Jacob married Tracy Lynn Rudo in Prince William, Virginia. According to Sherelle, Jacob had one child with Tracy. And in that moment, when Jacob lived in Virginia with Tracy and his newborn child, he probably felt like he had it all figured out. He was a marksmanship instructor for the military. He had a family. You know, the world was his oyster. But then everything started falling apart. Jacob and Tracy divorced after about a year of marriage in September of 1999. And then Jacob was discharged from the Marines. But not because he had a back injury, which is what he told Sherelle when they were dating. No. Jacob was discharged from the Marine Corps because of psychological troubles. And these psychological troubles might have had something to do with Jacob's ongoing issues with anger. Lots and lots of anger. In fact, remember those night classes Jacob was taking when he reconnected with Sherelle in 2005? Well, as you know, Jacob was trying to become a correctional officer through an academy, but the academy actually kicked Jacob out because they'd had to. Jacob told his classmates that he was looking forward to beating up inmates. Turns out that he was discharged from the Marines because he had homicidal and suicidal tendencies. He didn't tell me that, of course. So he wanted to go into adult probation and parole. So he started going through the post police academy and they kicked him out because he was making comments like, I can't wait to beat the shiz out of these people. And, you know, they would do all their physical exercises. And he was so so aggressive with his fellow classmates that they kicked him out out of the first section. They were like, you're just not, this is just not right for you. Add all of this to Jacob's history of alcoholism, and it's a bad combination to say the least. Actually, at the time that Jacob killed Teresa and Rosie, he was already under investigation. Someone, maybe Jacob's own girlfriend, had reported him in a domestic violence case in Harrisville, Utah. And Jacob wasn't in a good headspace around this time at all either. According to Jacob's own confession, he'd wondered what it was like to be a serial killer for months and months. This is so scary. So scary. He'd often fantasize about just walking down the street and shooting somebody at random. Can I tell you, that is like a fear I think about a lot. Like every time I walk by someone on the on the sidewalk, I think like, what if this person just stabbed me out of the blue or something? Oh my God, yeah. And it's terrifying knowing that people are like, what if I just stab this girl when I walk by them or shoot? You know what I mean? Like he's saying that's what he thinks about. I know. It would just take like wrong place at wrong time for somebody like him. It's really, really scary. Totally. Ugh. And even though Sherelle had no idea that Jacob would eventually go off the deep end in a really serious way, she had witnessed some of Jacob's challenges with his mental health firsthand. And some of those small, hmm, that's kind of strange, I hope you're okay moments, definitely look different in hindsight. I do remember him being very needy and a little bit possessive. You know, like he'd kind of throw a fit and pout if I didn't want to do something that day. I remember him being very moody like that. So I I can see things like that now in him. Several of my girlfriends that we all hung out together would say, oh my gosh, I'm not surprised. He was really aggressive and you guys bickered and he was, you know, a little bit controlling and power hungry. And I mean, it all makes sense. 
And not to mention, when Sherelle and Jacob were reconnecting, as they had a few times, Jacob shared that he'd punched a wall and scared his wife. So this is not good. I think at that point, I felt really bad. I just kept saying, I'm just so sorry. And he just said, my life is just falling apart. He's like, I've made some dumb choices. He admitted that what he did was so dumb. You know, he talked about getting so angry at home that, you know, he punched a hole in the wall. And I was like, Jake, no wonder your your wife's probably so scared of you. Like, you should not be doing that. And also, Jacob told Sherelle another very concerning piece of information. One day he came to work and he brought a gun because he was going to kill himself at work. As awful as all of that is, it did appear as though Jacob was trying to get better. Or he had at some point in his past tried, anyway. Authorities reported that Jacob had spoken to some counselors, and he did get on medication for his anxiety and depression. But all of which he stopped taking just a few weeks before he killed Rosie and Teresa. And one of Jacob's many prescribed meds was known as Effexor. The actual medication is called Venlafaxine, and it's used to treat depression. It affects her, and I didn't know this, but it has a lot of serious side effects. And this is especially if you stop it in an abrupt, not medically advised way. Like, usually you need to wean yourself wean, off yeah. of medications like this. And he obviously didn't. Right. And some medical experts, like a neuropsychologist, Dr. Ronald P. Houston, who would later testify on Jacob's behalf during his sentencing, claimed that stopping a psychotic medication like this suddenly can cause paranoia depersonalization, suicidal thoughts, aggressive behavior, and homicidal ideation. But other medical experts think that stopping psychotropic medications abruptly does not cause one person to murder another person. Dr. Stephen Golding, who would be an expert witness for the prosecution during Jacob's sentencing, he believed that Jacob's years of alcoholic abuse, coupled with his string of anger issues, were far more to blame than him neglecting to take his medications. Can't it be all of the things together? Like, <laughs> that's such a weird thing to say. Well, and I think ruminating on murdering someone for a year prior to doing it, there's something deep-seated in your brain that's wrong. And having an urge, let's be a serial killer. I want to shoot people walking by me at random. Like, I don't think your medication's to blame. I don't think your no. anger issues are to blame. Like, I think there's something wrong with you. Right. I mean, there's so many people that you know, have gone off their medication, probably not advised that don't kill somebody. And there's so many people that have suffered with alcoholism that don't go on to kill people. Like it's kind of just finding an excuse for his behavior, which you're right. It's like, obviously something is not right in his brain like that, which is obviously exacerbated by everything else. Oh, totally. And it is just a complicated mixture of factors. Like you said, it's, it's all of it. And it's so weird how all of this unfolded, but I have questions like, why do the military and this corrections officers academy both notice? Like they flagged him and they flagged his strange behavior. They flagged this homicidal ideation he was experiencing, but no one in his real life seemed to. It's like, how did he seem so safe to Sherelle and all of the other women he'd been involved with and his family and friends, but not to these organizations? One of the officers who actually helped take down Jacob's confession remembered how Jacob seemed like a nice, polite guy. The officer actually testified during Jacob's sentencing that when he and Jacob both took a cigarette break, Jacob talked like we were two guys out having a smoke on a Sunday afternoon. So obviously, like, he has a personable aspect to his personality. Right. 
And based on Jacob's confession and mental health issues, the authorities don't think that Jacob picked Teresa or Rosie for any particular reason, because it's unclear if he even knew their names at all. They were just the first sex workers that he interacted with, and he might not have even thought of them as human in that moment. It's really, really sad. No, it's disgusting. And we know that Jacob isn't the only one who thinks of sex workers as less than, especially as the many news outlets that reported on this case reportedly use terms like prostitute rather than sex worker. And hardly any of them gave any personal information about either Teresa or Rosie. Sometimes they wouldn't even include Teresa or Rosie's ages, but they would for Jacob. Outside of one article from the Desert News, which cataloged the response of Teresa and Rosie's family and friends, the reporting on Teresa and Rosie themselves was dismal. The whole thing is just really tragic. After Jacob's confession on Sunday, July 13th of 2008, he was arrested and held in the Weber County Jail without bond. He was charged with two counts of aggravated murder. And while Jacob was being taken into custody, the police were already dispatching officers to Teresa's location. Not because the police were super on top of it or anything, but because a man leaving his apartment at 6.30 in the morning on Sunday had found Teresa's corpse. Jacob did help the officers find Rosie's body, which was still inside that abandoned apartment on Adams Avenue. And after that, Jacob remained in Weber County Jail for several years awaiting his next court date. In that time, Jacob made some questionable decisions. First and foremost, he pleaded not guilty, which is insane, heartless, etc. Yeah, I mean, he confessed and he helped find Rosie's body like, you did it, dude. I don't know what he was thinking. And the next of Jacob's questionable decisions was that he beat the shit out of another inmate for literally no reason at all. Yeah, on October 23rd of 2008, Jacob and another inmate were waiting in a medical holding cell. They were going to be examined by the jailhouse nurses. And Jacob waited until the supervising deputies' backs were turned. And then he smashed the other inmate's head against the door and the floor repeatedly. The other inmate was fine. He only suffered some minor head injuries. But after that incident, Jacob was kept in isolation. And this happened again on January 12th of 2009. Jacob threatened, charged, and kicked an officer in the Weber County Jail. And just like before, he was put into isolation. Upon learning that Jake had killed two women... Sherelle was caught between two truths. The first truth being, this wasn't the same Jacob that she'd fallen in love with. This couldn't be the same Jacob who she danced with in her grocery store parking lot. And the second truth being, yeah, it was the same old Jake. No matter how much it hurt or didn't make sense, this was the exact same man. Sherelle thought that talking to Jacob would help alleviate her internal dilemma. Immediately when I found out, I was like, I got to go visit him. I have got to go see him. I've got to go see him. I've got to, I've got to talk to him, see what, what he was thinking, why he did it. And that's where, you know, it had caused this huge fight with my new husband, which was my ex-husband. I knew he'd done it. I'm not that person that's like, oh, no, he didn't do it. He didn't do it. I knew he did it, but I just could not fathom how it had happened, how he had gone from, you know, how he was to this. I think some of it is morbid curiosity. I wanted to look him in the eye to see if I saw the same Jake that I used to know. I wanted that so badly to see if he had just how he had changed and just like, what, what happened? And this became a big pain point in Sherelle's marriage. Her now ex-husband couldn't understand why she needed to speak with Jake. I eventually just agreed to let it go. 
I remember it was like a couple of weeks later, I was talking to my mom and I started crying about how upset I was. And she just said, you need to get over it. She's like, you're married and you just need to get over it. She's like, it's not right. And who cares? He's a murderer. And I said, well, I know him and I know that he used to be good. Years later, when Cheryl was divorced, she tried reaching out to Jacob, but it must have been after one of his violent behavior stints because the officers wouldn't let her speak to him. But I've got a feeling that Jacob would have been really happy to hear from her. After all, he was still on dating websites as he awaited his court date for the murders. Of course, you know, they listen to all their prison calls. Jake was on a dating website before he committed these murders. And when he's in jail, his brother would call him and he would say, oh, yeah, has anybody messaged me? In October of 2010, just days before his trial, 33-year-old Jacob Daniel Etheridge accepted a plea deal. In exchange for the plea deal, it was agreed that Jacob would not receive the death penalty for killing Teresa and Rosie. And on December 13th of 2010, Jacob was sentenced to two consecutive 20 years to life prison terms, meaning he'd be in prison for 40 years before he was eligible for parole. He also received one additional year for assaulting a police officer. And during his sentencing hearing, Teresa and Rosie's families gave victim impact statements. One of Teresa's brothers, James Park, forgave Jacob. He said, I know there is something good inside you. There has to be. I want to look at you right in the face. Welcome to this first day of the rest of your life. But Rosie's family felt differently, especially her mother, Lily. Lily wasn't at the sentencing hearing since she lived in Florida, but she wrote a letter. And that letter said, I hope you never have a good day for the rest of your life. My God said I should forgive you, but I cannot. Later, Lily told reporters that she had expected her daughter Rosie to come home soon. But instead, she received a box of her daughter's cremated ashes. In 2012, the Board of Pardons denied Jacob his first chance at parole. And in a rare occurrence, they were debating on simply denying Jacob parole forever. They don't normally do that, but according to the board spokesman, Jim Hatch, he said it's fair to say that this case caught the board's attention clearly. To date, there's no news available about whether or not the board actually denied Jacob parole indefinitely. But according to the Utah Corrections website, the now 46-year-old Jacob does not have a release date, and it looks like he hasn't been considered for parole since. Today, Sherelle grapples with wanting to get some sort of closure from Jacob, but whatever Jacob has to say, it won't change his actions. And Sherelle fears that Jacob will continue to reach out to her if she starts the conversation, and that is enough to keep her away. I've thought about it several times again. Do I, you know, want to try again? I don't want it to be a long-term thing. I would just want to see him once and hope for me that was closure. And I would be a little afraid that he would still want to contact me. And I don't, I don't want that. Sherelle suspects that maybe Jacob has already tried to reach out to her. But if he did, Sherelle's parents probably intercepted his letters. I have always said, I swear, I swear to you that he has written me and my parents have intercepted letters. I've never asked them because I do think they'd lie. But I swear with his behavior before contacting me out of the blue for years and years, I swear he would. Really, I still, in my gut, I think that, I think that he did. Ultimately, Cheryl has come to realize that judging somebody's character is way harder than we think. People can hide so much about themselves from you and everything about themselves in some cases. 
I have come to realize in all my years since 20 to I'm 42 that I am a terrible judge of character (laughs) and I just, I do not trust myself when it comes to people because I think I do tend to see the, just the good in people and, and probably make excuses because I'm like, oh, everybody has something. I can justify anything. You know how some people are like, ooh, I just get, I get the heebies around them or, you know, they, I just didn't feel good about them. And I'm like, ah, oh, I never did. <laughs> I'm like, he's so nice. That's the moral of my story is that I I do not trust myself in really knowing people's true character. Once upon a time, Sherelle really loved Jacob. She gave him her entire heart and she made cherished memories with him. They were an actual real life, should we get married kind of couple. They had a first date, a first kiss, a song that was theirs and inside jokes that no one would ever know but them. And then this man committed horrific acts of violence without any prompting. So no wonder Sherelle questions her own judge of character. Honestly, we should all doubt our ability to judge someone's character because when we get right down to it, the only person in the whole world that we know, that we truly know at all, is ourselves. And some people deny the most basic things about their own personalities forever. Sure, we think we know our significant others, our parents and our siblings, but we can't see inside their heads. We can't understand their motivations, their desires, their hopes, or their dreams. Not really. A huge thank you to Sherelle for being our first degree guest for today's episode. If you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram. Join us on Facebook. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon if you're looking for bonus content and come back tomorrow. We'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close, but not that close. 2 Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Andrea Marshbank. Sources for this episode are Ancestry, KSL News, Utah Corrections, The Standard Examiner, Find a Grave, The Salt Lake City Tribune, The Daily Spectrum, and Desert News. And as always, our First Degree guest is always our largest source. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.